When you think of humility, what comes to mind? Do you imagine a humble leader as someone without a backbone? Maybe someone afraid of making the tough calls or standing up for himself or his team? Do you think humility is too soft and fuzzy for the business world? Maybe too squishy to really leverage as a leadership strength? Is it even a leadership strength? Or is it a liability? Because being too humble in times like these, in a crisis, may mean you won't assert yourself. You will lose respect and get run over by others. So what's really behind a humble leader? Today, we find out by speaking to the most knowledgeable source on the topic anywhere in the world, Edgar Schein. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to episode 68 of the Love in Action podcast, now heard globally in over 100 countries. So glad you are here. If you're new to the show, you have landed at the place where we hold deep conversations with the world's most brilliant thinkers about how to make your business and workplace be both good for people and for profits. And today I am geeked up because we get to talk with none other than Edgar Schein, one of the world's leading thinkers in organizational development. In fact, Edgar has been called the father of organizational development. He's also joined by his son, a chip off the old block, Peter Schein. But first, let me start with the legend himself, Edgar Schein. He is Professor Emeritus at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Ed's numerous books include Organizational Culture and Leadership, Career Anchors, Humble Inquiry, and Humble Consulting. His latest book, Humble Leadership, co-authored with his son, proposes a new way of thinking about leadership that's based on relationships, openness, and trust. Edgar is the 2009 recipient of the Distinguished Scholar Practitioner Award of the Academy of Management, as well as so many other Lifetime Achievement Awards that I would have to have a separate podcast just to list them all. Peter Schein is a strategy consultant in Silicon Valley. His expertise draws on over 20 years of experience in marketing and corporate development and product strategy at tech pioneers like Apple, Pacific Bell, and Sun Microsystems. Through these experiences, Peter developed a keen focus on the underlying culture challenges that stifle growth in so many innovation-driven companies. Peter was educated at Stanford University and Northwestern University. Ed and Peter now work together as father and son and consult with major U.S. and international organizations on a variety of organization culture and career development issues. And let me tell you, I have interviewed a few people on the show that I would legitimately call true pioneers in their field. And I'm going to include Edgar Schein as one of them. So let's dive in. Here's my conversation with Edgar and Peter Schein. 
it's truly an honor to have both of you here. I am giddy with joy knowing that not only do I have Ed here, but Peter, you joined sort of unexpectedly. So <laughs> I'm thrilled. But Ed, I have to say something about you being on the show. Let me tell you, I've interviewed a lot of people on the show. And a few of those people, I always say, if there's ever a, a Mount Rushmore of leadership thinkers and experts that have changed the world, I need to tell my audience that I believe that the bust of Edgar Schein should be deserving of a spot. So it's my sincere honor to have both of you here. Welcome to the Love and Action Podcast. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Nice introduction. <laughs> Thank you. So we start every episode, and this is intriguing because I get to ask our first question to both of you, and that is, what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Who would like to start? What makes me smile in the morning is I have, if I have something in mind that I really want to do. So this morning, I was really anxious to get started on writing a talk, which I have to give in October, but I'm beginning to think about already. So I went straight to the computer and with great joy started to plan that talk, and that made me smile. That's great. How about you, Peter? From the sort of ridiculous <clears throat> to the sublime, I smile because it's summer. I love summer. It's days are long. It's greeted by light in the morning, not dark. So, And we live in California, so we have nothing to complain about. But from the that ridiculous to the sublime, I guess I, I have to point out that the idea that I'm going to talk to my 92-year-old dad and he's going to push me to think about something new or we're going to push each other to, to write better or something like just improve ourselves. He at his age, that makes me smile. That's, and we're getting better every day. Mm. <laughs> that's, mm. that's, that makes me smile. That's awesome. And I'm so thankful to have somebody at Ed at your age to just be still doing your thing and at a high level. You know, I get to follow you and, and see your writing and your work, et cetera. And it's truly astounding how much activity you're still putting out in the world. So I, I really appreciate that and the change. Yeah, you are a true change maker. Both of you are. And your contributions speak for itself. So I want to start with asking Ed a broad, overarching question. And this one's important because there are so many definitions of the word leadership. What does leadership mean to you? It has meant throughout my 60 years career, many things, but it's in the last few years working with Peter that I have finally got a very simple definition, which I'm going to stick to. Leadership means to me and to both of us now, doing something new and different that is better. Mm. And I emphasize leadership it's an activity, not a person. It's an activity that somehow produces something new and different that is actually better. Hmm. The reason that simple definition is so crucial is because it puts leadership every place throughout the organization. If someone has a better way to run the meeting and proposes it, and it works, that has been an important act of leadership. It's not about the CEO with the new vision. It's about anything that is new and better. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so new and better brings us to a very high bar for leadership. And I want to bring in the books, the, the most recent series that Ed, that you have written and Peter, you've joined in the last book. So there are three books so far in, in the series, the Humble Leadership series, right? The Humble Inquiry, Humble Consulting, and of course, now Humble Leadership most recently. Why the focus on humility in a series of books? Well, okay, so it starts with the idea that as with leadership, humility has a specific definition for us. And while we think the general sort of existential or human internal sense of humility, that may be important. But what we're saying is important in any situation is this idea of here and now humility, which means embracing the fact that in, particularly as things are getting more uncertain and complex, that you don't know the answer. And the people around you, collectively, you and the people around you probably can figure it out, or at least can figure it out as far as your next decision. So here and now, humility means embracing that idea that I don't know, I'm going to have to trust the people I work with, and together we can figure it out. And I would add to that the example that even the most powerful CEO or military commander, or other people in positions of power encounter situations where they don't know the answer. And it is not a loss of power at that point to say, I am the leader, but I don't know what to do in this situation. I don't have the answer. I need your help. Mm. Yeah, that definitely speaks to humility. So let's get into the book, Humble Leadership. Besides acknowledging something as humble as saying, I don't know the answer, I don't know the answer to this question, and seeking it from your subordinates, is there any other clear trait or a practice of humble leadership that really stands out for you guys that makes it different than any other style of leadership? In other words, how do I know I'm being a humble leader? Besides what I just said, is the answer of I don't know. Well, I'd like to tackle that by bringing in the whole concept of why we think of it as a relationship and thereby note the fact that when we use the word relationship, we're using a very vague term that has all sorts of meanings. And humble leadership does require a certain kind of relationship, which is best differentiated by getting away from transactional, role-based, formal, distant relationships, which is one kind of level one societal relationship, and building with your subordinates and your peers and even with your boss a more personal level two relationship where you get to know each other as whole human beings. And in that context, of that new relationship, it then becomes both easy to ask and even more importantly, it becomes easy for the subordinate and the peer to tell you the truth because you've collapsed the big psychological distance and made it safe. I ask you what I don't know and it's safe for you to tell me, boss, there are a lot of things you don't know 
let me tell you some of them and be grateful for that rather than offended. So yeah. it has to do with this level two relationship. Yeah. Now that you, you brought up the level two, so let's talk about those levels. First of all, let's frame it. Why did you decide to have these levels? You have a level minus one, a level one, level two, and level three. What should we know about these levels? How is it applicable to us as leaders now? Well, let me just round that out by saying, first of all, these levels come out of society. They're not our inventions. In all societies, there are relationships, the prison guard and the prisoner, the sweatshop owner and the uh, immigrant employee, where the relationship is minus one because it's totally domination. The people who are in the under position have no power and the leader has all the power. Out of that, we invented bureaucracy and hierarchy. And in the process of normalizing those, we decided that the best way for people to relate was around the transactions that they had. Salesman, customer, boss, subordinate. And we have job descriptions, and we make it very clear that people are supposed to stay in their roles and their lanes, and that makes society work. It becomes a beautiful machine. So why do we need anything more? Because the machine breaks down. Subordinates don't tell their boss the truth. Team members lie to each other to protect their personal positions. So when we observe good leaders, effective leaders, we discover they don't maintain that transactional role. They build more personal roles around themselves. They collapse the psychological distance and thereby enable themselves to be more humble and their subordinates to be more open and honest. But again, society has decreed that relationship. It's what we call friendship. It's what we call loving each other, which if it gets emotional, can get to level three. But these are not arcane, unusual definitions. These are definitions we live every day, except the minus one, hopefully. We don't live that every day. <laughs> but one, two, and three is part of our normal repertoire of how we live our life. Peter, where do most companies find themselves when you think of those levels? Is there a good place for where, I would say, the typical American company, where do they fall? Well, that's a great idea that there's a typical American company. I <laughs> might have to push back on a little on that one. But there are a few different dimensions here, one of which is that part of what we're describing as we talk about this transition from level one to level two is something that's happening. As we quote Frederick Laloux, something is in the air. There are companies who are realizing that this idea of building open, trusting relationships within groups, between groups, within a very well-established hierarchy, the hierarchy does not mean you cannot establish those level two relationships. And if you can do that, it makes the hierarchy function better, is sort of a basic argument. And yeah. a lot of companies have started to figure that out. We see that here in Silicon Valley. And you see very large companies that have kind of started to sort this out. 
It is that idea that you mentioned, Gary Hamill. It's that humanocracy idea. It's in the air. So we're not alone in sort of highlighting that this is an important concept. The other thing that I think I would mention is that we've sort of seen how, as we've described these levels of relationship, if you kind of invert the levels, so you start with level three, you're sort of describing what a startup does. They're very close, they're intimate, they finish each other's sentences, they live and breathe 20 hours a day doing the same thing. They establish, it's a professional relationship, but that is a level three relationship. And as the company progresses, it may get to the size, to the level of hierarchy and bureaucracy, that it starts to look more like a level minus one dominant relationship. It's gotten so big that people are actually just being told what to do and doing it. They're not actually engaged. They're not involved in the comings and goings of the organization. They're just doing their job. And you don't want your hierarchy, your bureaucracy to get to that level. But we do see that, you know, many companies do sort of go through this transition, this growth transition of becoming more bureaucratic, becoming more transactional, and becoming more sort of automated, if you will. And one of our great fears is that if that's the direction your company is going, then your employees may in some respects, be at risk of being automated out of their jobs. Because if your relationships are that transactional and that predictable and that linear, then maybe an AI does that just as well as a human does. So that's a vague sort of science fiction-y fear, but it fits very well in this model that we think evolving organizations need to continue to emphasize these personal, what we describe in the book as personized relationships between people that have to work together. Because if they don't, they're not going to share information outside of their boxes. And sharing information outside of your boxes is how you innovate. It's how you prevent accidents. It's how you grow the organization. Everybody out there listening from big organizations, you might want to try to place yourself in that level one and level two. But the reality is that those levels exist throughout our organizations. The question is, are we developing level two relationships where they need to be? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the ideal scenario then is for leaders then to strive to be at the level two, at a level two organization. If they're at a level one, very transactional, and maybe there's some abuse of power going on and it's not an open, transparent culture. Well, maybe the answer is right there, but I was going to ask you, how do we get to level two? The important problem that leaders face is that they run, run out of personal knowledge. And then if they are situationally aware, which is another very important concept, they realize that they are dependent on others and then begin to explore, and they've heard it from other friends, this more personalized way of relating. So I think until you discover your own limitations as a leader, you have no incentive. But in today's world, there are very few leaders who don't realize, if they're willing to admit it, that they are ignorant of a great many things, 
and that they are dependent upon others. And therefore, for them, it's an incentive to get more personal just to overcome their own limitations. I hope they see that. At least the whole purpose of writing about this is to make people aware of their limitations without taking away their job. They're still a leader, but they have to function in a different way in this future world. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Peter, you mentioned Gary Hamill. I had him on the show a couple of weeks ago and he wrote the book, Humanocracy. And Gary speaks, speaks against bureaucracy and he speaks with some heat too, you know, against bureaucracy and command and control. In your view, Peter, why do so many in management still choose command and control? Well, I think there's a couple sort of fundamental issues that all of us humans sort of share. One is that we value our job security. And so if our objectives are clearly laid out and we have some sort of, can exert some sort of control or power over the people in order for us to realize our personal objectives, it's a big to ask somebody not to do that because all of us value job security. But I also want to sort of turn it upside down and say, there's this idea of job insecurity. Human beings are intrinsically insecure. We want to do the right thing, but, you know, we're not always sure. We're uncertain about a lot of things, and particularly these days and when we're facing things like the pandemic, our internal sense of insecurity is very high. And so there's somewhere is in the notion that we cling to command and control because of our own insecurities. It's much harder to say, I'm not in control and I want, want the people around me, the groups that I work with, to help us all get into control. That's a hard thing to ask people to do. But we think it's a net positive thing down the road. You're going to get more out of those people that you work with or who work for you by accepting that there's more control, there's more for the group to draw out than for the manager to draw out of a group that he or she controls. I think it's a terrible confusion to put several of these ideas like bureaucracy, hierarchy, command and control into a single package because they're easily separable. Hierarchy was invented for coordination reasons, not for control reasons or command reasons. Hierarchy is very intrinsic to society and very much needed. Command and control is what you do in the hierarchy in using your position inappropriately. So I think we can say command and control is inappropriate without in any way challenging hierarchy. And I think it's critical that we recognize that because the attempt to destroy hierarchy has not been very successful. Whereas the attempt to change the way the boss operates has been very successful. Yeah, I, if I can just... That's a whole other issue. Yeah, let me just throw in to amplify that point quickly that we have quite a few stories in the Humble Leadership book that are taken from the biggest hierarchy on the planet, the U.S. military. There are some very forward-looking you know, leaders that we've met and leaders that we know about from the military have demonstrated humble leadership, this idea of not necessarily relinquishing any command and control, but drawing more information critical to decision-making out of the people that report to them. So to Ed's point, 
yeah, we can't condemn command and control. That's part of systems. But drawing more information out of groups and making better decisions can still happen within that frame. Yeah. And we can't do it without relationships, to your point. And that takes some humility to draw people closer to you. You mentioned uh, the pandemic, and here we are in a time of crisis. So I wanted to get your thoughts, both of you, on how leaders should be responding during a time when we have multiple things going on at once. And we'll do that after this short message. Don't go away. Hey, Marcel here. You know, so many people have asked me, Marcel, we want to coach and train our leaders remotely. Do you have any courses we can purchase online? Well, my answer up until the pandemic hit would have been, sorry, but you can book me for a speaking engagement. But now, with no end in sight to this pandemic, I decided to bring everything that I have delivered in speaking platforms and online workshops across the country to an online platform. It's a real curriculum. It's eight weeks long. It's got videos to watch, plus live Q&A calls in a private Facebook community, only accessible to members. The course is called From Boss to Leader. And I'm inviting you, my listeners, to participate as a beta group member. Together, this beta group will go through a learning experience with me guiding the way. And you will also tell me how to improve on the experience for future students of my course. The beta group is unique because you get 50% off the normal price. If you're interested and you want to learn more, I'd love to hear from you. Find me on LinkedIn or hit me up on my contact page at marcelschwantes.com. Okay, we're back. So here we are in the middle of a global pandemic, economic hardship, unemployment, social unrest on top of that. What does your work on humble leadership say for leaders everywhere trying to cope with the extraordinary times that we're in? Well, I guess we'll each have to deal with that ourselves. What I am most impressed with is that the modern world is a multi-force, global, interdependent system in which figuring out what's right to do is intrinsically impossible. There are no root causes. There are no simple strategies. And in my career, that leads us back to what little scientific truth we can rely on. So. I think we have to rely in this case on medicine and the best guidance from the people in medicine. If it were some other, if it were a wartime crisis or something else, there might be other places to look for solutions. But in this particular pandemic, the thing that I am most upset by is that those people who have formal leadership roles are systematically avoiding and ignoring what medicine pretty unanimously is telling us. So I would hope that the most important humility that formal leaders have to display now is humility with respect to medical knowledge. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess I have a couple ideas that I want to throw out that I think we don't see enough of, you know, in our national leadership, which is you know, one is acceptance in the sort of the Buddhist sense that we have to sort of accept that this is a gruesome reality, as it should be. It's a national obsession. We can't get this out of our minds. 
after we're smiling, when we wake up in the morning, to your first question, Marcel, we're also thinking, oh, God, that's right. We have to be thinking about the pandemic again. We can't escape that. We have to accept it. There's no, it's going to disappear. There's no, it's behind us. We have to accept that it's with us. The other point is about reflection, that we need to be continually sort of reflecting on how we're feeling, but also what's really going on. This is not a linear problem. This is a fractal problem. This is, we're trying to figure out what's really going on. And I think what's really fascinating the last few weeks is how all of a sudden everybody's talking about wearing masks because it became an issue that was trivialized a few months ago. And now all of a sudden there's this sense of, yeah, what's really going on is we can't share our droplets with other people. And that's a healthy thing to have arrived at that reflection. It's good that we're getting there. We're realizing that this is a very simple idea, but as Americans, it took us too long to figure this out. So let's talk about humble leadership and the future, which is the topic of chapter seven in the book. What are some trends that we're going to see, and maybe we're starting to see now, where we'll see humble leadership impacting our work lives for the next few decades? I'll just start with the obvious one, Marcel, that we wrote a section in the book about this idea of relationships in a virtual context. And I don't think we have an answer on that basic question if everybody's zooming in together and not actually meeting person to person. Can you develop those kind of strong, open, trusting, enduring level two relationships that we propose if you're actually physically separate and only connected by bits over fiber optic cables? And I think more and more my feeling is that it's different, but it's not necessarily worse. I think that there are people are figuring out adaptations for how you can make virtual connection actually just as rich, if not richer, than that time together. Now, one of the critical distinctions that we try to make is between efficiency and effectiveness. And it may be, we may find that we've all gotten to be very efficient using Zoom and video conferencing systems. But there still remains that question that we left unresolved in the book of, is there still that effectiveness, that communication outside of the box, because we're in our boxes when we're in Zoom, that, that happens that creates that deeper bond that actually allows you to make better decisions the next time. We're still not sure on that one. I would say, for me, I still think there's a degree of effectiveness that requires people to be together. But we'll get there. This isn't forever. And we'll have learned how to use the virtual tools better. I need to add to that from a different perspective. I think the world is changing from being a machine to being an open fluid system. And we're seeing both in the futurists like Johansson, a whole approach of different ways of thinking that this is gonna require, that the machine logic way of thinking no longer will work. And bit by bit, we're all going to learn this. But more importantly, I, as, as an older person, see this change happening already somewhat in Peter's generation, but even more so in his adult 
children's generation. And I'm now happily a great-grandfather. I have one great-grandson. And I know that his thinking pattern will evolve to fit this new reality that the world is going to create for him. So while I, I agree completely with the here and now issue of what's happening with the social media and being locked in and all that, to me, the bigger picture is how all of us are going to have to learn to think systemically in a completely different way to be able to cope with these complex systems that are confronting us every day in all sorts of ways. Yeah, that's interesting. Ed, I want to ask you to get real practical here. A lot of our listeners are not so much up in the C-suite, but down in the lower trenches in managerial roles. And, you know, they're asked to pivot and respond and adapt to so many changing situations, right? Especially now. So I've heard the saying that, and I'm quoting, I'm not sure where it came from. Your life is the small things repeated daily. What small things should we do habitually to be a better, humble leader when you're down in the trenches every day? Could I translate that into being a better human being? Mm. <laughs> Is this limited to leaders? No, it's not. Uh, <clears throat> good point. I've thought a lot about good and evil and ethics and related questions, and it boils down to this question of my daily behavior and my habits. I have truly discovered that good and evil is in my daily actions, mm. not in some set of principles or codes or whatever. I have a choice in every relationship. Every time I talk to Peter, I can be competitive. I can put him down. I can try to be the big guru and teach him stuff. Or I can say situationally, Maybe the most constructive thing Peter and I can do when we talk to each other is to think about how can we be constructive and good, which might mean asking a question, what's going on for you? And I believe that that is underutilized in our hierarchies, this notion that every human relationship can start with a constructive intent rather than I'm better than you, and I'm going to show you how. The argument of telling versus humbly inquiring. So I don't have any problem saying to anybody at any time, why did you do that? You know, why did you choose the action you took? And was it intended to be constructive, or was it intended to be competitive and put down it? Yeah. Humble inquiry, you cannot have humble inquiry without curiosity. Is that right, Ed? Well, curiosity is the positive driver. Being constructive is sort of the, the ethical driver. You know, we have plenty of evidence in the world that competition, as much as it may be touted as a good economic principle and maybe even as important in athletics, is a disaster as far as solving big, complex problems. The environment won't solve itself if the companies and the countries and the cultures continue to compete. Mm. 
How we're going to figure out to get past that, I don't know, but I think we're going to have to get past it somehow. And I'm circling back to your point. That doesn't start with theory. That starts with how Peter and I have our conversations. Wow. So guys, we have this tradition here on the show where we talk about the concepts of love and fear, sort of counterparts. And we know that practical love works. A humble leader cannot be a humble leader without the very act of sometimes putting other people ahead of themselves and hearing other voices, uh, which I believe to be an act of love in a leadership sense. And so we have the evidence that caring behaviors empower people towards business outcomes. And yet here we have fear on the other side of the equation here. Fear which can show up in so many different ways, intimidation, coercion, control. I have personally seen it because I've, I've experienced fear in a leadership role where my health was affected and it stripped me of my ability to be and do my best, stripped my ability to be creative and innovative. So the <laughs> million dollar question here is, we're in 2020 and yet I believe most organizations still lead through this idea that fear leads to results. And yes, it does, but at the expense of people. So why do people still lead through fear? I don't know why, because I think I have to bring in a different concept here, the U.S. culture. I think there are great strains in the U.S. culture of winning and being on top of your tasks and fighting the frontier and killing off the enemy, we have a very powerful dominant streak in us. We behave very colonially with respect to native populations and immigrants and so on. And I don't think every society has that streak to the extent that the U.S. does. So when you say, why do we see a lot of that. I think it's because we are fearful of losing our position in the world, Mm. and that's making us more competitive and more aggressive, both internally and externally. I think the U.S. is going to have to go through its own growth cycle and join the the real world of collaborative nations. Mm. Peter, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I I think I would just add after, you know, spending a lot of time in Silicon Valley during the sort of the birth and growth of the internet. Well, you know, you've heard the term FOMO. FOMO starts with fear. But, you know, writ large, FOMO, I think, is a concept that's sort of derived of this idea that something's going to happen within a matter of weeks that's going to out-innovate you and your company's going to be dead in a year. And it's happened. So I do think there's an anxiety about determining your own future that manifests itself into some sort of unconstructive and aberrant behaviors down, you know, on the shop floor, as it were, driving people to continually innovate. I'll share a little story that is in our uh, latest culture book, The Corporate Culture Survival Guide, that If you go to the Facebook campus in Menlo Park and you exit out of the main entrance, the main thumb-up Facebook 
sign, back of that sign is the Sun Microsystems logo. Uh, and that was the Sun Microsystems campus that I worked at for many years. So it is still on the side that's facing employees, it says Sun Microsystems. And why? Because Facebook wants to remind employees in the sense of a memento mori, like a skull on your desk, that if you don't continue to innovate Facebook employees, you're going to end up like Sun Microsystems. Mm. And which at best could be considered absorbed into a much bigger company. Yeah. Out here, there is an intrinsic fear of being out innovated that does motivate people. But I think it, unfortunately, all of the sort of attendant behaviors that come with that are kind of inevitable. There's a fear that talented engineers are going to leave. That's not fear in the sense of, am I going to lose my job? But it's a fear in the sense that. Other things happen and our productivity gets impacted by something better happening over at the company next door. I think it's a nature of the innovation treadmill that we're not going to be able to avoid. We just have to be able to contain. Mm. I would add one thing to that. I love metaphors. And, you know, we have this principle from our sports about winning is everything. You've got to do everything to win. And the metaphor that I'm using more and more is the relay race, where to win, we do have to have very fast runners, but we also have to be able to pass the baton. And I think the U.S. culture has a strong bias toward getting the fastest runners and treats passing the baton as an incidental thing that, oh, yeah, sure, we got to do that but they don't take it seriously enough so that we've actually lost Olympic races where we did have at least the second best runners because the Jamaicans are always first, but we dropped the baton. So how can we learn that we need to both compete and collaborate? How can we learn to pass the baton in a way that the baton won't get dropped? Mm. We looked at Jamaica and said, well, it's because they had Usain Bolt. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's because they're really good at passing the baton. You know, it could be both. (laughs) It probably is both. (laughs) Well, gentlemen, you did not disappoint, as I expected. There are some great insights, and I can't wait to listen to uh, the episode again to pick out those gold nuggets that I may have missed. So before we bring it home with our final two questions, is there any question that I didn't ask that I should have asked? that is pertinent to our discussion? I don't come up with anything particular that we've missed. We talked about relationships and the situational awareness, which you didn't ask about, but which is crucial to all this, flows from the fact that the world is a complicated place and you have to be very conceptually and emotionally agile in a complex world. So I would just throw that in as yet another problem for the generations of the future. But Mm. again, I already see them. I think the next generation is more agile than we are. Yeah, yeah. And maybe uh, we would add to that that they're more comfortable at quickly establishing relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the idea that we have to go bond over a long weekend, maybe that's a 20th century concept that, in fact, 10-year-old or 15-year-old today might say, no, 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 I 
developed a very strong relationship with somebody over Facebook. And I know that I can turn that into a productive work relationship. Mm. You know, it might sound a little scary, but I don't think it's implausible. Peter, I'm going to ask you, to, I know that you've already gotten into your heart, but one of the questions we wrap up with is this, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like us to know? Well, I think there is one theme that I often rant about that I want to introduce, and that is that I make the strong distinction between transparency and openness, that what is healthy for organizations is to develop this sense of the intrinsic good in being open with each other. And too often, transparency is substituted for that, whereas I see transparency as this thing that's imposed. It's you must share information with each other. The rules say so. And that's what we define as transparent. I don't like that. I think transparency is a weapon in that sense. I like the idea of openness where we have agreed in some sort of an implicit contract that we are going to share information with each other because we know that there's mutual benefit or there's synergy in that. So that's one of one theme that we didn't really get into, but I think it's important. I'd love if I could do anything in the world and you know in the remainder of my time here, it would be to get people to sort of substitute the use of the word transparency for the use of the word and the value on the word of openness. Mm, that's intriguing. Well, I'm going to ask Ed to close us out by sharing, Ed, what you feel is one final takeaway, one key takeaway, whether it's from this conversation, Ed, or from your whole career, your work, that we can take home with us that's going to make a difference in our lives. Oh, I'm going to draw that from the fact that the book Humble Inquiry has just been rewritten, as you may or may not know, by Peter and me. It is now a, a truly joint product. And the thing I have learned that I wish everyone would learn as a takeaway is that humble inquiry as an attitude and as a set of curiosities and questions is essential for three things. It's essential as originally it was designed to help build a relationship. It helps you get into better contact with someone to ask questions. I'm just going to concentrate on two, not three things. Secondly, and what, what I think Peter brought mostly to the party is, in this complex world, humble inquiry and taking an attitude of, I don't know what's going on, I need to find out. Reality is very slippery. There are too many fake facts out there. I have to learn to be a humble inquirer just to figure out what's going on and what I should do about it. Gentlemen, it's been an honor again, and I can't thank you enough, and both of you, for being here. Peter, for surprising us on the call. <laughs> and I am truly uh, filled with joy right now that you have graced us both with your presence. So if people want to connect with you, gentlemen, where can they go to learn more about you know, the work that you do and learn more about your books, and how can they connect with you personally? Well, we have a, a website, OCLI, which is, you know, acronym for Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute. So OCLI.org that has our books and has some blog entries and some videos. And so that's a place to start. And then you can reach us through the contact form on that site. And I'm on LinkedIn. 
So you can reach me that way too. What about you, Ed? We're now jointly uh, operating this OCLI, and that is the best way to reach us. I have my own email, which you know, shine at comcast.net. But the best way is, is to go through the OCLI so that you can see what's already available. Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, thanks again. I appreciate your time joining us today. Well, thank you for your very uh, good questioning and giving us the opportunity to tell the world what we're thinking about. My special thanks to The Shines for joining us. And thank you, our listeners, for being here and spreading the Love in Action movement, which is now heard in over 100 countries around the world. We would be grateful if you could leave us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcast. If you'd like to show notes and other resources related to this episode, visit my website at marcelschwantes.com and click on the Love in Action tab. Finally, if you or your company would like to sponsor episodes of the Love in Action podcast, let's chat. You can reach me on my website or on LinkedIn, and I would be delighted to have a conversation about sponsorship. Next week, I sit down with author and international keynote speaker, Karen Hurt to discuss her new book, Courageous Cultures. Until then, don't forget, love in action is what will truly set your leadership apart. Try it and be convinced. Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review.